You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. Hey, good morning, everybody. So good to see you. Welcome. What I add to Wes is welcome if you're new with us at Hope. Just want to tell you that we're really glad you're here. And we hope it feels like a safe place for you. And we hope that you're encouraged by being here. So there are a lot of great people at Hope. But when Wes came up here with Anthony and Bruce, those guys are two among a lot of great people. Anthony and I happen to be in a summer small group. And getting to know Anthony better has been really a joy. I was thinking, you're supposed to pray in Greek when you're in seminary and like be impressive with your seminary skills. But um, here's what you should know about Bruce. I don't know if this will embarrass you or not, but you're just gonna have to own it. Um, (laughs) Bruce is a retired dentist. Before Bruce was volunteering at the thrift store, when Hope was in schools for 11 years, that means every Sunday you have to set up and take down the whole shebang every week. Bruce led our setup teams for 11 years. So that's like 570 Sundays, trailering in, out, setup, takedown, organization, the whole bit. So I think, you know, there are like SB awards for sports and there's like Grammys for music. Like the church ought to have a servant award. And uh, for sure, Bruce would be somebody who would be deserving of it. Bruce and Nan have given an awful lot of their heart uh, to the ministry of Hope Church. So just fun to be surrounded by lots of great people. So last week, as we were moving along in our series, Beholding Jesus, we talked about Jesus and the miraculous, and we identified particularly John chapter two, where Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And I was trying to make the point that it is no accident, it is no coincidence that the first miracle happened at a wedding. And today, I think and hope that we'll see more of why that was no accident. It's also a beautiful picture at the end of that account in John chapter 2. It has this little snapshot caption. This was the first miracle that Jesus performed and his disciples put their faith in him. And this happens at a wedding. So moving along in our series, we've been looking at all these different things, but now we're coming to the home stretch as it's like we're kind of around the final turn and we can see the finish line for this 15-week series. And what I want to do now is back up a little bit and start to see Jesus in the big picture. Last week I said that I suppose if you could classify the Bible as some sort of genre, it would be like a romantic tragedy victory even though I don't know that such a genre exists, but I think that would be kind of what the Bible looks like. So New Year's Eve, 1986, Elizabeth and I were going to go out for dinner together. We'd been dating, and I had my plan ready. And there was a church that was near some of our roots, normal roots, And occasionally, we would stop in there and pray in this little chapel. So we had a dinner reservation, and I said, let's go, and just before we go, let's take a little time, we'll go to this little chapel and pray. We had done this many, many times. There had never been a person in this chapel. Well, I had my plan and a ring that was burning a hole in my pocket, and we got to the chapel, and there's a guy in there. (laughs) 
And it was like a little chapel. It's not like we could sit in there and have distance. Little chapel, like maybe four rows on each side. I'm like, you're kidding me. Like, who are you, dude? Like, you have never been here. And then I know I'm supposed to be like, oh, I'm sorry, God, he's praying. I know I should love this guy. And I'm like, no, I'm not loving this guy. I'm really frustrated with this guy. So Elizabeth said, that's all right. You know what? We can just go find like a little, a Sunday school classroom and pray. I'm like, no, 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 no. She's like, yes, we can pray in a Sunday school classroom. I'm like, no, no, we cannot pray in a Sunday school classroom. She's like, I thought you had reasonable theology. Now I'm not sure. So I said, no, no, no. Let's go see if we can go in the main sanctuary. Okay. It's New Year's Eve. It's a winter night. It wasn't late, but it's dark because it was like 630 maybe. So she's like, we don't have to go in the sanctuary. Now, this was Elizabeth's home church where she grew up as a kid. So we come around the corner, and there's this woman who I knew was kind of like the property manager there. And the door to the sanctuary was locked, and I said, hey, let's ask her. She'll let us in. Elizabeth says, no, don't ask her. I'm like, why? Elizabeth says, that's mean Mary. She'll never let us in. I'm like, mean Mary, what the heck? She said, well, yeah, I have like some PTSD from being a little girl. My twin sister, her twin sister, and she used to ride their bikes down the halls of the church. And mean Mary would catch them and scold them. And like, she's like, no, don't ask mean Mary. I'm like, I'm asking her. I mean, what are we going to say? Can we go in there and pray? She's going to say, no, we are not going to have any prayer around here. So mean Mary let us in the sanctuary, and it was dark in there, except there were shafts of moonlight coming through the windows. And um, so in that sanctuary that night, that's where I asked Elizabeth to marry me. Well, this is before cell phones. Some of you are thinking it was before me. I wasn't even born yet, dude. (laughs) So there was no text or phone calls. Everybody say, hey, we're engaged. So we went for our dinner reservation. And it was a really sweet little memory because we were the only two people on the planet who knew we were engaged. And we had this dinner together. I wouldn't be emotional except we were taught the whole marriage weekend this past weekend. So that's the only reason I'm emotional. So that was New Year's Eve, 1986. We got married on June 20th, 1987. That's about a six-month window in between. That's where we live. We live in the six-month window in between. Let me see if I can explain it to you. This idea that God is presenting himself as the groom to his people is an ancient biblical idea. It starts in many, many Old Testament texts. In Isaiah 54, one among many examples, it says, listen to the beauty of these words. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. One among many examples of getting glimpses to the idea that your maker is your husband. He's not only your creator, he's your husband. What does that mean? What is that supposed to mean? We'll be challenged if we overstretch the metaphor, but we also don't want to miss the significance of it. 
It's not that God's love is like a marriage. Like, it's not like God's love is like your marriage or marriage in general. It's that marriage is like a slice of what this love of God is like. It's like a little sampler. Maybe you could call it a sacramental sampler. So in John chapter 14, Jesus had been ministering with the disciples and he's getting toward the end of his life and he's told them that he's going to Jerusalem and there he's gonna be tried and killed and the disciples are nervous about this. Like, what is this gonna mean for us? We've left a lot to follow you. They're fearful about being left. In the midst of that context, Jesus says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So I want to try to explain a little bit of Jewish wedding customs because it's essential to understand what he's saying here. I've done this variously over the years at Hope. I don't think it's been for quite a while. For some of you, this might be a little bit familiar, but to me, it's significant enough to spend a little time in it again. So here's generally how a Jewish wedding proposal and then the wedding rolled out. A young man would have the desire to marry a young woman and he would go ask her father for permission to marry her. Remember the context is village life. These are small villages in the days of Jesus. These are small villages. There might've been 100 families, maybe 300 families, most of the villages wouldn't have had more than, say, 300 families. There might have been some neighboring villages, but most of them would have been about 300 families max. That would have been a big one. So you get the idea. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's known everybody since they were all little kids. Everybody knows everybody else's kids. It's very communal. It's very village-oriented life. This young man who wants to go to the girl's father and ask him if he can marry her It's not a stranger, they're not meeting for the first time. That girl's father knew this kid since he was a little shaver. So he goes to the girl's dad and he asks if he can marry his daughter. If the father says yes, it's a provisional yes premised on the young man going to prepare a home where they will live, where he will then receive his bride and they'll live in this home. With that provisional permission, the young man then made his marriage proposal to the girl. If she said yes, they were betrothed. Okay, this is a little bit of a word that's a little foreign to us. It's like engaged, but stronger. For us, engagement is yes, we're committed, and yes, there's a ring, but occasionally an engagement can be broken. It doesn't mean that we've gotten divorced It means that we've made a different decision and we're choosing not to get married. But a betrothal was stronger than that. A betrothal had the strength of marriage. In other words, to break it, you had to get a certificate of divorce. Okay, so then you're thinking, well, then why don't you just call it marriage? Because the two have not been together 
intimately yet. And that won't happen until they're married and until the place where they're going to live is ready. Okay, what is this place where they're going to live? The way the custom rolled out is, like it or not, it's the custom. The couple always moved to the boy's family home. And it wasn't like they went searching for an apartment of their own. You always lived within the home of the boy's father. It's a patriarchal society. So you're always going to go live in the, the groom's family home. And you might think, wow, sometimes that must have meant those homes must have been big. Sometimes that's true. Now, they didn't live with the square footage that we do, but they would add rooms on to the family home so that when there was a place within the boy's father's family home and it was ready, then the boy, the groom, could go receive his bride. There would be a wonderful wedding celebration A wedding reception lasted seven days in those days. You get a little sense of the significance of marriage. A wedding reception lasted seven days. Okay, a couple little more details and then we'll move on. The groom had groomsmen. Their primary job was to be the announcers when the groom was ready to come to receive his bride and have the wedding happen. The bride had bridesmaids. Their primary job was they were the receivers of the announcement, and then they would go tell the bride, the groom is coming tonight. The only person that had the authority to say to the groom, it's ready, you can now go receive your bride, was the groom's father. Because it was his home. It's a patriarchal society. So the only person that had the authority to say to the groom, it's ready, you can now go receive your bride, was the groom's father. You might think it would have been the bride's father, like, hey, I want to see if this place is good enough for my daughter. Understandably, but that's the way we look at it. This is a patriarchal society, so the only person that had the authority to say to the groom, it's ready, you can go receive your bride, was the groom's father. Okay, ready? Let's read this again. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this weren't so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't know, Lord Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So nobody knew when the wedding was going to happen. The groom was working on preparing the place in the family home, but it was only his father who had the final ultimate authority to say when he could go receive his bride. This gives a little light on Matthew 24, 36, when Jesus was speaking about his return. He says, however, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. Only the Father knows when the groom will return for his bride. That's us. We're living between New Year's Eve 1986 and June 20th, 1987. The groom has come. The groom has proposed to everyone who has said yes to Jesus' invitation to life with him forever. 
They've said, yes, their proposal is in place. The betrothal is secure. He's now going to prepare a place for us to be with him so we will always be where he is. And then when it's ready, he'll come back to receive his bride. That gives you the context. Okay. Henry Nouwen is one of my favorite writers. One of the things I love about Henry is his transparency about his journey to actually believe and receive that God loves him. I love his honesty about this. I think most of us have a similar journey. We can hear God loves you. We can hear some of the Sunday school stuff. We can say, yeah, but to actually believe this, to comprehend it, to apprehend it, to own it and make it a reality, many of us struggle to get there. And now and is quite sincere and honest about his own struggle to get there. He uses the word beloved a lot. He says, it's always been hard for me to see myself as God's beloved. And he wrote a book, a beautiful little book called The Life of the Beloved. So what I'm trying to say is, Jesus has come into the world. We are, you are his beloved whom he's come for. Now we begin to realize that he is the first and fullest fulfilling love for us. He's the first and fullest fulfilling love for us. This reduces a lot of marriage pressure. If we know that he is the first and fullest fulfilling love for us, this reduces a lot of marriage pressure. Let me back up for a second. If you've read the Gospels from time to time, you remember Jesus would say to them something like, don't do it like the pagans do it. You have a father in heaven who loves you. When he was teaching them to pray, he said, don't just go on babbling and babbling. Like the more repetition and the more mantras you roll out, the more persuasive it's going to be, as though you had a God who didn't care and you had to keep bugging him. You have a God who loves you, who knows your heart, who listens. Pray sincerely and speak to him. Don't pray like the pagans do, like they don't really believe that there's a God who fully loves them. Well, now when we get into the marriage analogy, I think Jesus would suggest to us, don't look at either singleness or marriage like the pagans do. You have a God who loves you as your first and most filling love. And this reduces a lot of marriage pressure. So we live in a culture where some people might think there's cultural pressure like if you're not married, you're incomplete. This will dismantle that idea. There are some people who think, you know what? Gee, I'm 35 and I'm not married and I'm tired of being asked about it. Understandably, but that's in a culture that has this quasi incomplete unless you're married thing woven into it. When we begin to realize that Jesus is the groom, he is our first and fullest love, the only one who can fulfill us. Whether you're single or married, knowing that he is our first and fullest love relieves a lot of marriage pressure. So if you're single, you have this love offered to you in God's love in Jesus Christ. If you're married, you can stop putting so much pressure on your spouse to be your first filling love. Because no human being can meet all the needs of your heart. 
Simon Tugwell says it this way. He says, this is that kind of idolatry which tends to occur when people fall in love. Then you identify some other human being as the source of all your bliss and you try to possess him or her. When the relationship then begins to show the inevitable signs of strain, instead of recognizing that the initial demand and expectation was unreasonable in the first place, people just conclude that it was the wrong girl or the wrong boy. When we receive Jesus Christ as the first filling love in our lives, the ground is level, whether you're single or married. If you are married, you can remove the pressure to have your spouse be your first filling love in your life. You can remove the expectation that this person will meet all my needs, anticipate all my emotions, and fill all of the broken places in me, because no human being can do that. And like Simon Tugwell says, if we put that kind of pressure on another human being, that pressure will implode the relationship in time. So coming off teaching our marriage weekend, which we do twice a year at Hope, the symmetry is kind of nice here with this weekend's topic. You know the whole idea, I'm trying to find the person who is the one, the one. It's, it's kind of a smiler, it's kind of a fun romantic idea. But I tend to be a little bit of a rationalist on some of these things. So I'm like, the one? Okay, so there's approximately three and a half billion women in the world. Three and a half billion men in the world. The one is gonna lead us to a frantic needle in a haystack journey. And if you just play the odds, the chances are the one would be in India or China because that's where the odds are in your favor if you're just playing the statistics. <laughs> so I'm a little insecure about it because I'm afraid people are gonna be like, oh, that's so sad, he's dismantling my romantic ideal of the one. <laughs> but let me see if I can help you with this because I love the romantic stuff. Like truth be told, I remember our anniversary and how many years we've been married, more than Elizabeth does. Love you, honey, but that's true. <laughs> and she's got to own it. Okay, so I love the romance and all of that. But this idea of the one, particularly in Christian circles, it gets amped up even further. Not only am I looking for the one, I'm looking for the one God has chosen for me. <laughs> so, if we begin to press this a little further, here's what this ends up meaning. I found the one. I found the person who is perfectly compatible for me and will gratify me and meet my needs in every way. No person can do that. Which means the one with that burden laid on it doesn't exist. Or what about a person who had a lovely, beautiful marriage for let's say 20 years and unfortunately, their spouse passed away. In time, they meet somebody else and they get married, and it's again a wonderful, beautiful marriage. Well, which one was the one? You see, now we're talking about the character of these relationships being something richer and more meaningful. If we go into marriage with this idea of the one, here's what often happens. If the marriage gets to a time where it becomes a little bit challenging, which all marriages do, what are you gonna be thinking inside your head? Uh-oh, maybe he's not the one. 
Well, if we're going to keep recycling that, we're just going to keep recycling spouses on trial and error until we find the one, until we realize that this idea is not a valid relational idea from a marriage perspective. Not only that, we'll think, uh-oh, what if they're not the one? We then might think, and God, why did you mislead me? So we'll have the disillusionment on the person and then the disillusionment toward God saying, God, why did you mislead me? Jesus is our first, fullest love. Among other things, the significance, the theology, the beauty, the power of what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What he's telling you is he is the one. If you're looking for the one, he's who you're looking for. And when we make him the one, then we can start loving people out of the filling of his love for us, rather than interacting with them to get from them to meet all of our needs. Okay, so we're living between December 31st, 1986 and June 20th, 1987. We're living in the in-between. The proposal has happened, the betrothal is in place, he's gone to prepare a place for us and he's promised that he's coming back. And we're all saying, when, when, when? And he says, no one knows the day or the hour when this will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the son himself, only the father knows, of course. That's how it works. So when the groom had gotten the approval from the father, the father would say, okay, you can go receive your bride. Then the groom would tell his groomsmen, Go to her and tell her I'm coming soon. The groomsmen would go to the bridesmaids who were the ladies in waiting for the announcement. And then they would go to the bride and say, he's coming soon, he's coming soon. And she would get ready for this wedding. Matthew 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but didn't take along any extra oil. But the wise ones took oil and flasks along with their lamps. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. There's a picture of the bridesmaids waiting for the arrival of the groom. They would run and tell the bride, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. This also suggests to me, it's gonna be longer than we thought. You can do what you want with your theology of that. This suggests to me, it's gonna be longer than we thought. Only the Father knows. What we know is we're waiting for the groom. We are the beloved. He has chosen us, called us to his heart. I was talking to some staff about this idea this week and one of our staff members started reflecting on how she remembered and felt when her husband had proposed to her, the excitement, the enjoyment, that sense of gratitude that this love had come into her life and also the anticipation that the wedding is coming. That's the idea that we're living in. Single Mary doesn't matter. He's the groom, we're the bride. The idea is we are the beloved. He's called us, he's set his heart upon us. You can live out of that belovedness and with the excitement that the wedding's coming, the wedding's coming. What this begins to do is free us and form us into the fullness of his love. And as we grow into this, it enables us to love people 
in the real way that love works, giving of ourselves to them. So C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce, and it's a kind of parable, and it's a look at conversations from heaven of people looking back on life on earth. One snippet. You mean, said the tragedian, you mean you didn't love me truly in the old days? The old days being when we lived down there on earth? Only in a poor sort of way, she answered. I have asked you to forgive me. There was a little real love in it, but what we called love down there was mostly the craving to be loved. In the main, I loved you for my own sake because I needed you. When we begin to embrace Jesus as the groom, we begin to move into the reality that we are the beloved in the strength and depth of his love, and this enables us now to live loving by giving rather than by getting out of the fear. See, most of us fear rejection. We fear being left. And fearing rejection and fearing being left means most of us will live with a certain level of hiding in our lives because we're afraid if somebody knew all of that about me, we would be rejected. So we live with a certain level of hiding, which is a very exhausting way to live. And now we've realized that Jesus is the groom. He knows everything about us, and he has offered us complete forgiveness. You needn't hide anymore. You needn't fear rejection anymore. Your groom knows everything about you, and he has offered you the fullest forgiveness. So now we can enter into this beautiful relationship See, most of us, when we come into those of us who are married, when you came to your wedding day, you brought a bunch of baggage. You brought some things from your past where you wish you could have some do-overs. You brought some shame places in your life. And that stuff is going to have to be worked through in our married life. In a sense, you could say it's going to sully our marriage, but we can work through it and come to a beautiful growing place But Jesus knows all of this about us, and he has provided the complete forgiveness so we can come into this relationship without hiding and without fear of rejection, free in the fullness of his love. So Song of Solomon 8.6 says, love is as strong as death, and it's as jealous as the grave. This is the strength of this kind of love that this groom is offering us. So the home stretch takes us to Revelation 19. I heard a sound like the roar of a great multitude, like the rushing of many waters and like a mighty rumbling of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad in him and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. She was given clothing of fine linen, bright and pure. Note, it's not just a marriage, it's the marriage of the lamb the Passover lamb, the spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Now you can enter into this relationship free, full, forgiven in the magnitude of his love and in the status of being his beloved. He's our forgiver. He's our life giver. He's our healer. He's our wholeness maker. He's the one. So For many, it's customary in a marriage proposal that the groom will get down on one knee and ask his bride to marry him, his bride-to-be. Our marriage custom is that you get down on one knee and you ask her to marry you. Jesus got up on one cross 
and he asked you to marry him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done for us. Lord, all of us, I think it's true, one way or another, we struggle to receive your love in its fullness. So we pray for each other in this room, each of us with our own story, our own past, our own memories. Would you help us into the fullness of your love through Jesus Christ, sacrificial, forgiving, groom, love? Amen.